Kings chapter 3 tonight. Hopefully everyone has a handout. And um, just uh, thinking about Solomon and who he is. You know, we're continuing our series. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we talked about Solomon's win for the kingdom. He, he won over Adonijah, if you will. He thought that he, he was going to take over the kingdom, and God allowed David to be able to anoint Solomon in his place, fulfilling that, that previous prophecy that Solomon would be the, the king. Last week, we covered Solomon's walk with God and who he is and who he was in his relationship with God. And we saw how he loved the Lord and the Lord loved him. And in fact, his name, uh, Nathan the prophet, called him Jedediah, which means beloved of God. And so we're going to see even further this week at God's love displayed, if you will, for Solomon by giving him something no other man in history before or ever since had from, from God. And what is that? Well, it's our third lesson, and it's Solomon's wish. Solomon's wish. God gave him a wish. Now, many of you are familiar with the, uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. If you know the Make-A-Wish Foundation, would you raise your hand? Yeah, we, we all know about Make-A-Wish Foundation. Well, that's kind of the modern-day uh, example, sort of, what Solomon got from God. It was founded in 1980 for the specific purpose of providing children with critical and life-threatening diseases a special blessing or a special wish to do something over the top that was special that they may have never gotten to do before or would ever be able to do on their own. And so uh, it's the world's largest wish-giving organization as of now looking this up uh, with collectively more than 500,000 wishes that were granted around the world. And it makes it the largest of its kind. So granting the wish is meant to lift the spirits of the child and to give hope of survival that in turn that might give them more energy to fight the diseases. And, and so if you look on their website and you look at some of the information, research has shown that it, it actually may help to improve outcomes and give them a greater outlook on life because they have the wish, they get lightened in their heart and gives them more energy to fight the disease. And so uh, I can tell you that uh, it hits close to home. Um, my niece, 23 years ago, her name's Hannah, and um, she was contracted with, uh, or she contracted cancer behind her eye, and they could not operate. It was an operable tumor, and so they were giving chemo treatments, and the treatments that they gave was taking her body down where there was uh, difficult to fight off infection. And so uh, she came through those treatments, and they gave her a make-a-wish. And so my sister and brother-in-law got to go to Florida for a whole week, and they gave them $800 to spend. This was back in 1998. And they gave them $800 to spend, and they picked them up in a limousine. And can I report to you that my niece Hannah is 26 years old. She is cancer-free. She is doing very, very well. And so praise the Lord for that. But that was a sweet thing in, their, in my own family's life. And so what a blessing that was. But research has shown that these wishes apparently improve some children's quality of life and provide better health outcomes for some. And certainly Hannah was one of those. And we believe God ultimately healed her, though. But King Solomon, he would sort of be the charter and only member of God's ancient Make-A-Wish Foundation. Can you think of it? Make-A-Wish Foundation that God was giving to him. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. What would that be like, folks? What would that be like, the God and creator of the universe says to you, as he says to Solomon, ask what I shall give thee. He doesn't put any stipulation on it. Just ask what I shall give thee. 
That's an amazing, amazing request. And so being offered anything you want in the world by the very creator of the world could be overwhelming. Why would God do that for Solomon? Why would he do that? Well, we learned last week that Solomon was beloved of the Lord. That's signified by his name, Jedidiah. God wanted to bestow a special blessing on the successor to the man after God's own heart, Solomon's father, King David, right? And so we want to pick up the story here this evening where we left off from last week in 1 Kings chapter 3 and notice what Solomon is doing just before the Lord comes to him at night in a dream. We'll pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 4. It says, And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. That's Solomon. For that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he hath walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Oh, and now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David, my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out and how to come in. And thy servant is in the midst of the, uh, thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked his this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time, shall we? Father, thank you for the wonderful word of God tonight. Thank you that we have the privilege to stand free here tonight to preach your word. Thank you for each one out on a, on a cold uh, uh, wintry night, and thank you for those who are watching from home. We pray that the word of God will have free course in our lives as we understand this, this uh, opportunity from Solomon, Lord, might we be able to apply truths to our lives that we might be strengthened to be more like Christ as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Solomon just completed the act of worshiping the Lord by sacrificing a thousand burnt offerings. We just read that there in verse 4, right? He's offering up in Gibeon a thousand burnt offerings. We ended our message with that last week. And so according to Leviticus 1, by the way, offering a burnt offering was not just a small matter. Leviticus 1 tells us about that in the law of God. It symbolized the offerer's voluntary presentation of himself to God. It was like making a sacrifice, saying, Lord, I want to get close to you. This is a, an atonement for my sin. It was an act of dedication and devotion to the Lord and could be done any time one was so inclined to do so and keeping themselves right with the Lord. It was an atonement for sin and a means of an unholy people approaching a holy God. They would offer a burnt offering through the priest. It had to be a bull or an unblemished sheep or a goat, depending on one's wealth. The poor, though, they could offer a bird if need be. Did you know that Jesus Christ himself 
was a type of this, or this was a type of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, he was the ultimate burnt offering. Verses 5 through 7 talk about that. Solomon most likely offered a thousand bulls or rams because he was wealthy and he could afford to do that. And so just imagine a thousand bulls or rams lining up and, and are in a, in a stall somewhere in a cage and, and they just keep coming and coming and coming. And Solomon is doing that as a sacrifice to God to say, Lord, I'm coming before you reverently. This is a big deal. I'm not taking my new kingship lightly. I want you. I need you. I want to be holy before you. And so we read about this large offering that he's making. He reverenced the Lord, and he wanted to start his new kingship in close fellowship with Jehovah. Um, I don't know. Did you notice in verse 5 that God came directly now to Solomon in a dream. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. Folks, does that sound like something that Solomon has set apart as well? Do you know that uh, during this time, God was, he worked through Samuel, he was a prophet with uh, Saul, and then there was David who had the prophet Nathan, but here is God coming directly to Solomon. And, and coming to him in a dream at night and talking to Solomon through his night visions where really that was mostly prophets that had that personal interaction. But Solomon had this personal visitation from God himself which sort of set him apart as well. And so he has this dream in verse 5. So let's look at our notes, if you will. First of all, God's offer. What is God's offer? He offers Solomon to make a wish. Solomon, verse 5, ask what I shall give thee. Nothing else, just that. What shall I give you? You see, God was allowing a man to tell God what he specifically wanted to bless his life. He could write his own ticket, if you will. Solomon, what would you like? In some ways, God had to trust Solomon that he was going to make a, a righteous choice not an ungodly one, right? Did God trust Solomon enough to give him such an open-ended offer? Well, apparently so. So Solomon is at a reverential moment. Do you think God sees Solomon offering these sacrifices and seeing Solomon's heart and saying, you know, this man is close to me. I want to bless him with this offering or this uh, request, this, this wish, if you will. Three men were marooned on a desert island as the days slowly went by. They dreamed of what it would be like to be at home with their friends and family, to be back at their jobs doing the things they loved. And one day an angel appeared to them and announced that he would grant all three of them one wish. And so one of the men said, boy, I really would like to be back in Seattle with my wife and kids. Poof! He was gone. The second man immediately said, well, I want to be back in Portland with my fiance in a, in a flash. Poof! He was gone. The third man was left all alone sitting on the sandy beach by himself, and he said, Boy, it's really lonely here with my friends gone. I sure wish my friends were back here with me. <laughs> Poof! <laughs> they returned. Got to be careful what we ask for, right? Solomon, I'm sure, because he was offering and, and drawn close to the Lord, was careful what he asked for. 
And it must have been a sincere request because it wasn't so personal to him. Like, I want all these riches and wealth and fame and fortune and victory over my enemies, as, as uh, you know, the Word of God tells us. It wasn't any of that. And so Solomon must have had a pure heart. God could trust Solomon at this point in his life with that request. And so in your notes there, there was no conditions there was no strings attached, if you will, to this request. Let her see, there were no performance requirements. Solomon, if you do this, then I'll give you that. God just bestowed upon Solomon the offer of a lifetime. What's he say? Ask what I shall give thee. Wow, that's unique in all of history. And so that's, that's the start of it. So what's Solomon's attitude now about this? What, what's he going to think? Where is he going to go with this unbelievably amazing offer that God is making? Solomon's attitude. Well, let's keep reading verse 6. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David my father great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. You know, for you or I, or, or I know for, for me, if, if God offered some great thing, like offer anything, what do you want? I'll give it to you. I'd be thinking through my mind, okay, I'd like this. This would be great. You know, I'll take that. What does Solomon do? What's his mindset? What's his attitude? Well, it seems as though because Solomon was wholly dedicated to the Lord at this time, coming off this reverential time of sacrifice, God would reward him with special blessings. And so, commentator Matthew Henry says, the nearer we come to the rule in our worship, or the focus in our worship of God, the more reason we have to expect the tokens of God's presence. Draw near to God, and he will what, folks? Draw near to us. Draw near to us. So, how are you doing with that? Are we like a Solomon? Do you sense this week or this past month or in this new year, you know what? I am more committed than ever. I want to draw near to God. I want to know Him more. I want to be more obedient to His commands. I want to bask in His Word. I want to honor Him by serving others. I want to have a joyful spirit, a joyful heart, a joyful attitude. I want to please God with my life. Is that more of what you have in your mind? Well, Solomon must have been in that mindset because look at his attitude here again in verse 6. God comes directly to him. And he must have had this special place in his heart for Solomon, so he's going to do something extraordinary for him. And so his attitude is this. First of all, letter A, he expressed, he, he expressed gratitude. He's thankful. He doesn't all of a sudden just say, well, Lord, I'll take this. And then the, the, the dialogue is over. Solomon weighs his words. He acknowledged that God had showed his father great mercy and kindness. In essence, he was saying, thank you, Lord, Thank you for being so wonderful to my father during his reign as king. Can you imagine stopping long enough to offer thanks, first of all, instead of just giving God our request? Lord, all right, I'll take this. Thanks, God. See ya. Solomon, first of all, stopped and contemplated. Now, most commentators believe right now Solomon at this time is about 18 to 20. Doesn't that make that thoughtfulness even more impressive for an 18 to 20-year-old stopping first and saying, wait a minute, i got to think about this request and, and what God is offering me and say thank you for all that you've done so far for me and my family up to this time. And so he's thanking God that he's shown David, his father, 
such great mercy and kindness. Second there in your notes, he placed emphasis on David's having a son, not on himself, being a great son of the great King David. Well, Lord, I'm glad you chose me, and, and I know that you picked me over Adonijah and all the other 19 brothers that I have, and so I, you must see something special in me. So yes, I'm glad that I'm the one, and so here I am. He's not elevating himself at this point. He's, he's rather saying to God again in verse 6, you showed my father great mercy as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and uprightness of heart. You've kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son. That would be me, not that I'm this great son. No, you, you've given David, your servant, a son, and I happen to be him. <laughs> thank you. Like, thank you. And, and that seems to be his attitude here. He's placing the emphasis on David having a son, not on himself. He doesn't have this dictatorial or superior attitude. Remember, he's king now. And he could be thinking, you know, I got it made. I'm king. People will worship me. They'll bow down to me. They'll, I'll, I'll come through and they'll just want to, you know, sing my praises. I'm king. He, he had none of that. In fact, let us see, he calls himself a servant. Notice in verse 7, And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. We can't miss those little things. For a young man to be anointed king and have the praise and approval of all the people, it would have been easy for that to have gone to his head. But he didn't. He said, God, I'm your servant. And we can see that when he's offering a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. I'm your servant. I'm here not to just be king over this people. First and foremost, I'm your, I'm your servant. And I wonder in our titles today and what we do and the people that we might have charge over or manage or control, our children or, or you know, co-workers or whatever that we have, do we lead with that type of humility, with that type of attitude? We're still a servant of the organization, and so we want to, though we might manage people, have a servant's heart towards those who are under us. That's a good lesson. Solomon's king, but yet he's saying, Lord, I'm, I'm your servant, and I am here reverently uh, before you. Number four there is, letter D, he makes a personal acknowledgement of Jehovah. Another thing to just point out here, look what he says in verse 7. And now, O Lord, who's God? O Lord, say it together, my God. My God. Folks, that's significant. Again, Solomon's 18 to 20 years of age. Again, little things like this are important because Solomon was declaring that Jehovah was his God. Notice the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's Jehovah. That's the eternal, all-powerful one. Eternal, all-powerful one. You are my God. You're my supreme being, the Almighty. I acknowledge who you are. And so you're my God. You're not just my father's God. You're not David's God. You did the great things for David, and I appreciate what you did for him. But now... My love for you has been transferred, and I now have my own relationship with you, not through my father, David. So Solomon owned his own personal relationship with Jehovah, and he was not just riding the coattails of his righteous, godly father. How easy that would be. And Solomon was not doing that. 
And so how important is it for that for us as parents that we pass our faith down to our children? And folks, that our children don't just say they're Christians because, well, my mom and dad raised me in a Christian home. Or, yeah, you know, my mom and dad go to this church. I don't go to that church anymore, but they're really committed, you know, followers of Christ. But are they really committed followers themselves? Or do our kids sometimes just hide under our, our wing as, yes, I'm my, my parents' child and they're godly people, and so I'm sort of under their wing getting their righteousness, as opposed to saying, no. We want our children to own their salvation. We want our children to own their own relationship with God and let that grow personally in their own life and not just ride the coattails of the parents. And Solomon seems to have done that. He's not riding the coattails. He's make, he makes God his own. He owned his personal relationship. And so uh, Solomon... He was sincere. It seems that by every indication, Solomon is sincere here when he says, O oh Lord, my God, I'm your servant, and you made me king. And so what does he say next? The next thing there in verse 7. And I have this underlined in my Bible. He says, I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or to come in. I know not how to go out or how to come in. Uh, let me, let's just get some feedback here. What do you think he meant by that? I, 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 don't, I don't know how to go out or how to come in. Feedback, what do you think? What are, what are some thoughts that Solomon meant by that, but he's talking to God? Any ideas? Yes, sir. He wasn't mature. He wasn't mature. <laughs> so he's admitting, <laughs> I'm not really mature here. I can't really handle this much. Yeah, maybe, certainly. Yes, ma'am. He didn't know how to lead as a king. I've never done this before. I watched David, and I learned a lot of things, but now I'm in the room of David, my father. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah, good. Somebody else. Yes, ma'am. Carol? Okay, so he could be intimidated, thinking, you know, I'm just a kid. Who's going to listen to an 18 to 20-year-old? I don't know how to handle all these older people, all these godly men, all these pillars of the faith of Judaism. How, and the Jews, how, how am I going to bleed them? I'm just a young guy. And so, yeah, all those things are possible. He says, I'm just a little child. In your notes there, number one, a young man in age, but immature and inexperienced in life. He's, he's in, immature and inexperienced in life. He admits that it, he's over his head in this thing. Like, wow, I'm out of my league. <laughs> Lord, I don't know what I'm doing here. I watched my father, but now it's my turn. And, and I, I'm, I lack the knowledge and the skills and the experience in leading a nation. I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. He needed help and lots of it. How many of you in business have ever heard of the terminology, the Peter Principle? Anybody in business ever hear that before? Yes, one. Anybody else? Two. A couple of you. The Peter Principle. I learned this way back in college. Let me tell you, the Peter Principle um, <clears throat> is anyone, it's a business term and refers to when someone gets promoted to the level 
of incompetence and are asked to do what is beyond one's skill set or experience to do. So a manager is good at a lower level and gets promoted to the next level and might do well there, and then they get promoted again, they do well there, and they get promoted. But pretty soon they get promoted high enough where they're saying, boy, this job is bigger than me. It surpassed me. I was, I was good at this and felt comfortable at this level, but up here, oh, I'm not sure how to handle this. And so they get promoted beyond what their, their abilities are. And so Solomon reached that very quickly, and he admitted his youthful inexperience in becoming king. Lord, I don't know how to do this. I am, I am way, way out of my league. You know, even David expressed that of his own son. I have it in your notes there. Look at 1 Chronicles 29 in verse 1. This is what David said. Furthermore, David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great, for the palace is not for man, but for the Lord. Take care of Solomon. Don't be too hard on him. He's growing up. He's young and he's tender. He's going to grow, but, but be patient with him. Solomon, he shows, I love the line, I am but a child, and I know not how to go out or to come in. So, folks, here's another opportunity for you to help me out this evening. Look in your notes there. Ways that we can show childlike dependence on the Lord. Maybe you have a personal experience, and, and maybe it's something that, Lord, I, I, I couldn't do this, but God saw me through it. Anybody have a testimony? Like, childlike dependence upon God. You remember a time in life when you were just at your wit's end, it was way out of your control, and God intervened in some way. Can you think? Yes, Crystal. Amen, amen. Talking about her son having something lodged in his throat and they couldn't get it out. And so she was helpless and just had to depend upon the Lord to be able to get that out. And eventually that did, that did subside, it came out. Somebody else? Dependence upon the Lord, just a brief story. Yes, man. When, when Rebecca was born with her heart issue, boy, I remember being down to visit her in the hospital in the intensive care unit down in the city. Wow, there was all sorts of things hooked up, and, and God just brought her through that. It was, it was God who did it, right? Amen. I, yes, sir. Jerry? God made a way for you to be here just tonight. Amen. Amen. God wants you to hear to hear this, right? Praise the Lord. 
Amen. God is good. You know, we could, we could really, if we had a lot of time, talk a lot about stories of how God, and I want you to think about that. I want you to think about and not forget the times where God has intervened and made himself strong because we were completely dependent upon God. Said, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get out of this when this was too big for me. And God wants our utter dependence, folks, upon him. That's what's exactly where Solomon's at. Lord, I'm a little child. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this. Help! And what does God do? God does help him. You know, when you think about it, perhaps the most, one of the most popular verses in all of the Bible, certainly in the Old Testament, and it's probably uh, a common verse for most people to be their life verse or verses, is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord. Can you finish it with me? With all thine heart. And what? Lean not. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Folks, who wrote that? Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Who wrote the Proverbs? Here's Solomon writing about the very dependence upon God, and he tells his own son, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That's Solomon's words. And here we are quoting it tonight. And so many do. They claim it as their life verse. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It can almost sound cliche-ish to us because we use it or we think about it so often. But in reality, here's Solomon living it. Lord, I'm too small. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to go out or come in. How do I be a king here? What do I do? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. What a great application of Solomon's own words to his own life right here. Maybe he was thinking back to this time when he wrote those verses. He's a little child. And folks, sometimes for us, God just wants us to be little children. Yes, he wants us to figure things out and, and, and work hard and do our part. But there's times where God, a lot of times, just says, are you going to trust me? Are you going to depend upon me? Are you going to hope in me? Am I really your God? Am I really your first go-to person in all of life? Or do you try to work it out yourself or you trust in your riches or, you know, you got your own skill set that you could use to get out of this bind or whatever? How often is it that we can say honestly, Lord, I'm but a child. I'm just a little child. And he's king. I don't know how to go out. And I don't know how to come in. And so that's, that's what he's talking about. Um, in your notes, number two is that very thing. He, he didn't know how to come out, how to come in. I'm but a little child, and I don't know what to do. Now, I have a little box there in your notes. It refers to not knowing how to conduct the affairs of the government. He was not a warrior like his father. Do you remember David? He was a powerful warrior. He had those band of 600 disgruntled, angry, you know, uh, thieves or lawbreakers. And somehow God brought them to David, and David was their leader. And David had to somehow, in some way, powerful way, change their heart and change their circumstance and help them see God through David. And David was able to win those men over. They would do anything for David. And you read in Scripture about how, how they would get down and give them a drink of water and come back, you know, defeating an army. 
And they would do anything for David. David was a powerful leader, a warrior. He was a bloody man. He's, he was in the military and commanded lots of people. That was not Solomon. In your notes there, that this going out and coming in, Solomon was rather sheltered compared to David. The going out and coming in means managing people. It means directing the military. It means dealing with civil matters and legal disputes. It means keeping his own house in order. It means keeping law and order in his kingdom and managing the finances and making international alliances to help keep the peace and running the economy, just to name a few. And now it's on this 18 to 20-year-old young man, and so he's saying, Lord, the Peter principle fits with me. It's way too big for me. I'm, I'm out of my league. I can't do it. I know not how to go out or to come in. And so... He expresses in verse 8 the challenge of managing such a large and great group of people who are God's chosen people who are held in high esteem before God. Now he's got the pressure. God, this isn't just an average group of people. These are your chosen people, and I'm called to lead them, and they're righteous people. You've set us apart from every other nation on earth, and I'm called to lead them now? And so he says in verse 8, And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, are great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Can he really be capable of managing all these people? I know in my own life, uh, back when I was 27, not 18 or 20, but 27, out of college in my first, second job, it was, I, w I felt the Peter principle in my life. I was a marketing guy, and once a year we had to stand before all of the big wigs of the company. There was the president who sat right here. And imagine a big boardroom with that long mahogany table and all the big chairs around the table. And then outside of that, there's all these other chairs. And it's all the, it's the presidents, the executive vice presidents, the vice presidents, the assistant vice presidents, the AVP. They're all around and their eyes are on you because you're going to try to convince them why they should give you $10 million to be able to market their product and make them money. And so I'm the marketing guy talking in front of all these people, and, and I was sitting over here, and my time to get up was coming, and I'm just sitting over here, just I'm sure like Solomon, Lord, I'm just a little guy. What am I going to do? How am I going to talk to these people? I don't know what to say. I'm just a just little meal, meal over here. And in the back of the room, there was uh, my friend who was a born-again believer. His name was Dave Bluey, and he was a Christian. And uh, I'm sitting there just kind of sweating bullets, and, and I look back at him, and he goes like this. I'm praying for you praying for you. Do you know what happened? A complete calm came over my heart, and I was next to get up. I said, thank you, thank you. And so I got up, and the Lord gave grace. I was calm. I was at peace, and we actually got the money we asked for to, to, to go market our, our product and so on and so forth. And uh, God blessed it. But I knew that I needed help because I wasn't in myself able to do that without God's grace and help. And that's where Solomon was, and that's where God wants us to be, like a little child. Number three, Solomon's wish. Solomon's wish. We get to that part of the story. Look at what Solomon now says. He's finally going to give an answer after he goes through all this stuff, these prerequisites. Thank you, God, for all this. Thank you for that. I'm nobody. I'm a servant. I'm the child of my father. And, and uh, Lord, I don't know how to go out and come in. Here I am, and I got all these people to take care of. So he asks in verse 9, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this thy so great a people? That's, all, that's just one verse. That's all he says. 
And so you see there in, in letter A, a, an understanding heart. That's what he asked for, an understanding heart. Now, if you look that word up a little bit more closely, you'll see that understanding means to hear intelligently, folks. It means to hear intelligently. And so Solomon's saying, Lord, I want to have a hearing heart. I want to hear from you. I want to know exactly what you want me to do. I am all ears, if you will. He wanted to rule by continually hearing from God, and this was both to be a dependence upon God and a perpetual request throughout Solomon's reign. He wanted God to continually feed him, especially here as this young, unskilled man. One man once said this, listening is the way to gain wisdom because everything you say, you already know, <laughs> right? You already know what you said, so to listen means you're going to gain new knowledge, and that's what he wanted to do with, with God. I need to know more stuff. God, teach me. Do we listen enough? Has anyone ever called you a good listener? Some people say I like to talk. I don't know if that's true, if that's true or not. <laughs> I do like to talk. But can I tell you, I do get to listen to in the counseling office. It's part of the large part of what I do, listening to people share their story and their circumstances and situations. And it helps me to better appreciate what people are going through. And so I can always get better at it and want to continue to grow. But more than that, I want to hear from God. Solomon wrote 11 times in Proverbs, hear instruction. Hear counsel, hear my son, and open the very first chapter of Proverbs in chapter 1, verse 5 with this. I think I put it in your notes. A wise son will hear and will increase in learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. Do you think he was referring back to this time as well? Lord, I need an understanding heart, an understanding hearing heart to hear you. And he wanted to hear continually from God. Second, um, it was to judge the people between right and wrong. That's what verse 9 says. Give me an understanding heart that I can discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this size so great a people? Remember, Paul wrote about that. For some we are the savor of death unto death. The other we are the savor of life unto life. The message of the gospel is so important, it's so vital. And then he says, and who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to deliver the Word of God effectively? We can only do that through the power of the Spirit of God working in us. And, and that's what Solomon is saying. Look, I can't do this without you, Lord. I need your help. Uh, judging your people is going to be a monumental task. Just ask Moses, right? He wanted to have his understanding heart tuned into hearing wisdom from God that would help him discern how to help his people and that God would give him a heart for truth so that he could dispel wickedness. And we talked about that last week, about how often Solomon wrote in the Proverbs about truth, 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 throughout the Proverbs. And so he wrote extensively. Here's this 18-year-old young man then, and he's asking for wisdom, not wealth. He's asking for discernment, not death for his enemies. And he's asking for a listening ear, not long life. What a mature thing to ask for a young man. What a great wish to, to pursue God on. It's uncommon for a man uh, brought up in such wealth that he could have very easily just rode his father's coattails. 
but instead he humbles himself. Finally, what's God's response? What's God's response to all this? Look at verse 10. And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart. That's a heart to hear. So that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. First in your notes there, you see God was pleased. Folks, what a great testimony. Would God be able to say that of us? I'm pleased with, put your name in there. I'm pleased with the way you're living your life, with the way that you speak, with how you spend your time. I'm pleased with your passion for my word and for your witness for me and how you conduct yourself. God was pleased with Solomon's request. Second, God promised his request for wisdom. He said, I'll give it to you. And you can read in 1 Kings 4, we won't take the time to do that now, but the special blessing granting Solomon wisdom would be unique from any other man in history. And it talks about some of that over in, in chapter 4, 29 to 34, about his wisdom. We're going to look at that in, in uh, next week. But third, God would prosper him with riches and honor. Verse 13, I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all the days of thy life. You're going to get wisdom like no man ever in history before you or after, and I'm going to give you riches and honor like no other king that's been in your lifetime or whatever you'll see come to your equal, your peer, in, the, in your lifetime. I'm elevating you in both ways, Solomon. Third, God would prosper him with riches and honor. We just, we just mentioned that, sorry. Um, so as a result, he's unique among all the kings. No one could attain unto Solomon's wisdom. He would also get extreme honor. I put this, these verses here in your notes. Look at 1 Kings 10, 23 to 25. Here's what happened. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver, vessels of gold, and garments, and armor, and spices, horses, and mules, a rate year by year. They were so impressed with Solomon, they wanted to give him gifts. And they bestowed upon him more wealth, and more wealth, and more wealth, because they said, who is this guy? He's way beyond us. And so God, <clears throat> letter D, would prolong his life if he remained faithful to the Lord. Now that was conditional. Look at verse 14. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. We will see, we all know what happened to Solomon in the end, but right now, class, we have to, for folks, we have to understand who God was to Solomon and who Solomon was to God. And so we have to think through that, and we'll study that in the weeks to come. And so finally, what does Solomon do in verse 15? And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up, here we go again, burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. He started by offering to the Lord a thousand bulls. 
God blesses him with this wonderful wish. Solomon awakens and offers more offerings to the Lord. You can see his heart for God seemed to be real. It was sincere. He made more burnt offerings. He wanted God to see, God, thank you, I need you, help. That's where Solomon was. And so, class, as we close tonight, what's the spiritual growth challenge for us? What's the, what's the issue for us to take home tonight? Well, here it is in your notes. What captivates your heart more than anything? All of us have something that motivates us more than other things. If you were given a wish like Solomon from God, would God be pleased with your request? And Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 4.23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Don't let other things in this world, folks, even the negative things like a COVID, captivate your heart. The economy, the administration, the rising prices, the turmoil that's going on in our land. Keep your heart with all diligence. Let's stay focused on God. Let, let's let God captivate our hearts, even through this time of turmoil. A grateful, humble, and respectful heart is the recipe for God's divine favor in your life. Let's learn from Solomon and be wise in our life pursuits. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for the lesson tonight, for the Word of God that helps us to understand who Solomon was, and Lord, even overlaying our own life before you and who you want us to be in this life and in this world. Give us the motivation, the passion, the desire uh, to walk with you, that you might be pleased with our lives as you were with Solomon's request when you granted him that wish. Give us victory even this week, Lord, to be dependent upon you, uh, to seek your face, to have a, a listening heart, to hear from you that we might walk in obedience to your truth. Bless us as we part in Jesus' name. Amen. That's the passage we have this morning from Luke chapter 7. What a great story we have here. Um, and I'd like to read it for us, and then we'll pray and get into the lesson. Luke chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading at verse 36. It says this, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together, shall we? Lord, thank you for the truth of the Word of God. Thank you for the stories that are true from Scripture that reflect your life here on earth when you were um, here on this earth during your earthly ministry. And so we, we pray, Lord, as we interact together this morning on this most tender and important story from the Gospels that you would speak to our heart. And I pray, Lord, that we would consider in our experience with you truly loving you more as we get the sense from this passage today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this story is really a contrast between someone who really loved Jesus and someone who 
really didn't love Jesus so much. It's the story of a sinner and a self-righteous. A sinner and a self-righteous. A Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus to a dinner, as we just read, at his home. And so we don't know what his motives were for that. He's a Pharisee. Um, and he could have been pure that he really wanted to find out more about Jesus, or it could have been just for the fact of finding out more about Jesus and his mission so that he could go back to his leaders and, and sort of disclose some of the dirt on Jesus to use against him with the Sanhedrin, that, that religious body of Jewish believers in the temple and expert scholars in the law. He could have been setting Jesus up with this meeting. We don't know for sure. But who showed true love for Jesus? Was it the Pharisee who knew the law and was very religious, or was it this sinner woman? And so here's the focus of our message this morning. If you have your notes, and we uh, sent those to you uh, yesterday, you can, you can follow along if you have those. Here's the, the point of the message. If you really love Jesus, it's going to show up in at least three ways. And I'd like to talk to each one of those this morning. Three ways, according to this passage, that this woman did that will really identify or show, display our love for Jesus. And first, number one is it will show up in your attitude. There's your feeling. It'll show up in your attitude. Now, I'm going to look at the attitude of both the woman and the Pharisee, and we're going to contrast each one for each of these three points. First of all, the woman. The Bible says there that she had an adoration for Christ in verse 38. Um, not specifically the word adoration, but look what it says. It says, and she stood at his feet behind him weeping. Folks, she shed tears over being able to show her gratitude to Christ. She was so humbled, she was so broken in Jesus' presence right there that she was just weeping. No one talked to her. No one said anything. She came in in the presence of Jesus and began to cry. She was deeply moved for the kindness that Christ must have shown to her to bring her to this uncomfortable place at a Pharisee's house where, where Jesus was, knowing that she would not be welcome there, but she came anyhow. She was a sinner, and she knew, and she knew it. In fact, her sin is never disclosed to us in the Scriptures but was most likely a, a lady of the evening, a lady of the night. She was so far from living a righteous life and being worthy of Jesus' forgiveness and even being in his presence that she just wept as she got near to him. There must have been a lot of conviction. There was a brokenness in her because she realized who she was, and I'm sure she must have recognized who Jesus was because there's all these religious Pharisees around but she chose to go to Jesus, not the religious, but to Jesus himself. Jesus was both tender and accepting of her adoration and her contrition. And so that's the first thing we see. Second, as part of this, this um, effect that, that uh, she had or this attitude that she had, she washed Jesus' feet. And it also says that in verse 38, as we read. She stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. I'm not sure if you ever washed someone else's feet, but probably not a stranger's feet, maybe someone that you know, but not a stranger's feet. Well, she stood behind him and, 
and she washed his feet. But it wasn't just a, a normal washing, was it? It was a place of servanthood. It was a place of penitence in her spirit. You see, in those days, Middle Eastern culture dined by reclining with their legs to the side and their knees were bent back behind them so their feet pointed away from the table. These, these uh, tears that she shed, they weren't just a few drops of tears. They were crocodile tears that moistened Jesus' feet enough to wash them. I mean, you could imagine it was a gusher. It was flowing out of her, just dripping and dripping, enough that the Bible says she could wash Jesus' feet. Now, his feet would have already been washed when he first came in the house, but she's moistening them and, like, washing them again with her own tears. That was true repentance. It's, it's what that is. We're broken over the magnitude of what we are convicted about in our spirit. And it's a brokenness and a turning away from our sin because we detest it and never want to do it again. And it seems like that's what that woman was, was seeking to do by coming to Jesus in the midst of a very unwelcoming crowd. She was coming to submit herself to the Lord and coming in tears, coming in a spirit and attitude of, of brokenness. You know, so much of today's attitude towards sin is a, is a flippant or a, a token acknowledgement, isn't it? But, but not an utter abhorrence of our sin. Sometimes we can be just a little bit too casual about our sin, and we, when we confess it, it's, Lord, forgive me for this, I, I, I really feel badly, and, and thank you for your forgiveness, and we can move on. Well, this woman teaches us that when we sense the magnitude of our sin, there's going to be a, an attitude behind that. There's going to be some emotion behind that. There's going to be a sense of, 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 of contempt for ourselves at times because we realize when we're in the presence of the Lord, and she was in the physical presence of the Lord, but when we come to Him in prayer, we're in the spiritual presence of the Lord as well. And so we can sin with this unrepentant attitude, one of casualness or even callousness, but not brokenness. And we need to be careful when we are coming to the Lord that we come with the right attitude, that broken spirit. You see, the more religious or self-righteous we are, the less broken we tend to be about our sin. And that's what happened last week. Brother Bracelin was preaching about the publican and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee, well, he prayed within himself and thought that he was righteous, if you remember the story. And, and the, the publican, he wouldn't even lift up, lift up his head because he was so broken over his sinfulness before the Lord. And this, this woman had that same type of broken spirit, that broken attitude, if you will. Then she did something that would have been considered scandalous for a woman to do in public in that culture. Well, what was that? Well, there in your notes, let her see. She, she let down her hair to dry Jesus' feet. She undid her hair and allowed it to hang from her head freely. Women didn't let down their hair in public back in those days. And she began to use her hair. It was a very personal symbol of her beauty. And so when she let down her hair, she was almost like letting herself down to say, Lord, I'm humbling myself completely 
before you to wipe the dirty tear water from Jesus' feet. And she didn't stop there. She didn't just cry with her tears, wash her feet, his feet with her tears, and wipe them with her hair. She went a step further. And you look at the end of verse 38, and it says, And he, she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Folks, there's very few of us today that would consider being that humble and broken before the Lord. Let's just be honest. But this woman knew how wretched she was in her spirit and being in the presence of Jesus and His holiness, she was showing her brokenness, but also her, her love for Jesus that was, had to be very deep because of who she knew that He was. And she began to kiss his feet. And in the ultimate act of love and appreciation, she had done what no other had ever done that we read about anyhow. Now Mary, in Scripture, in the New Testament, had anointed Jesus' feet and washed them with her hair like this woman did during Jesus' final week before the cross. But this woman kissed Jesus' feet. She went down to the next level of her adoration, saying, wow, this... This truly must be my Lord and Master and wanted to have that close relationship with Jesus. She was so grateful for granting her forgiveness and loving her despite her sin. The only meaningful way that she could express her absolute adoration for Jesus was by kissing his feet. And she continued to do that. What do you think the other religious Pharisees around were thinking when she saw when, when, when they saw her doing this to Jesus. Do you think that she cared? Do you think that stopped her? Well, it didn't. That had no effect on her because her relationship with Jesus at that point was so adoring, she could care less what anyone else was thinking at that moment. The other interesting part about this, folks, is that guess what? She never made it to Jesus' head. Usually when we kiss someone, we kiss them on the cheek or we kiss them in a, in a friendly way or a loving way. It's on the face. It's in the head. She never, ever got near his head. She was so, in her own mind, wretched. The only thing she could do is stay at his feet. And so she remained there, showing her brokenness. And so, you know, the act of kissing uh, one's feet is not a Jewish practice. It's a, it's a heathen practice. It's not a Jewish practice. It's what worshipers of pagan deities did and was not a practice of the Jews. And so she was a pagan sinner and she's adoring Jesus and seeking his mercy because she, as a pagan woman, knew who Jesus was more than Simon, the Pharisee, did. So if she's going to show homage to a deity, this is the way she would have done it. And so she's seeing that I need to, you know, Throw myself out before him. Simon, rather than see this as a loving act, was beginning to have more and more contempt for the woman and even for Jesus as he would allow a sinner woman to dare touch him, even if it was just his feet. And so, next in your notes there, letter E, she was unashamed about what others thought, as I mentioned briefly a moment ago. 
Now imagine marching unannounced into the leader of the synagogue's house, a Pharisee, sitting right down by the table and doing what she did right in front of him, most likely knowing what these religious leaders thought of women of her kind. It would not have been pleasant thinking, for sure. She certainly wasn't invited and, wanted, and welcome there, and she was not one of Simon's honored guests, to say the least. So if we contrast that, something like this, if, if we would go over to Pastor Wendell's house for a fellowship with a bunch of our guest evangelists, and some woman showed up out of the blue going right to the table and beginning to wash, let's say David Gibbs, one of our favorite speakers here, wash David Gibbs' feet at that, at that dinner um, for, his, for her appreciation for his good messages that he's delivered. Imagine that. It would be something like that. We, we can't imagine the embarrassment of that today. And yet the woman didn't care. She, was not, she would not be denied. She wanted to unashamedly express her love for Jesus. It was her adoration. Now contrast that with the Pharisee, with Simon here, as he is named. Look at verse 39. It says, Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And so first of all, Simon, this Pharisee, he speaks within himself. He speaks, he's talking to himself, meaning he was, he was talking to himself, formulating an opinion based on Jesus' treatment of the woman. His mind is going, it's racing a mile a minute, and it's not good thoughts. He had already copped an attitude about Jesus being less than he claimed to be because he thought Jesus didn't even know who the woman was and she's a sinner. Why would he be allowing that to happen if he knew who she really was? He can't be a prophet. He can't be a righteous man. He wouldn't let this woman do that, not even touch her a little bit. And so his attitude revealed his heart. He thought the worst about the woman, and now the worst about Jesus. This woman knew Jesus' love and believed in his power to forgive and to forgive sin, but Simon the Pharisee, he doubted within himself. He couldn't believe Jesus could be a prophet because a prophet would never let that happen. That could never be the case. Jesus would have been, if he really was a righteous man, would not stand for this type of behavior upon him. And so he was thinking within himself and reasoning, probably becoming more indignant. And so folks, can I just say, when people come into Valley Forge Baptist and they don't always look the part that we typically might as regular attenders or members here, if they come in in a little bit different clothing or if they have a little bit of different hairstyles or they don't have the exact look Let's be godly people and accept them for who they are, not in any way looking down our nose at those who might look a little bit different from us. We love them to come to our church. And if you're listening this morning and you would love to visit our church, come just as you are. We would love to meet and greet you and have you a part of our ministry here. We have to be careful 
how we look at one another. This Pharisee, he was looking at the Son of God with contempt, thinking he was more righteous than Jesus himself, putting himself up on a pedestal and putting the woman and, and Christ himself down below him. And so second, he was also self-righteous. There was a haughtiness about Simon that Jesus perceives, especially when Simon sees the woman blathering all over Jesus. He's becoming more and more upset, like, who, who should receive this level of care and, 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 and affirmation and love and adoration? Who should get that? That should be reserved for God only. And so Jesus knows exactly what Simon is thinking, and so he begins to tell a little story to show Simon his heart. And by the way, Jesus has a, a great way of doing this like no other. He doesn't get angry or irritated with Simon. He, he doesn't excuse himself from the table and leave the room in an offended protest. He's, he's simply going to tell a story and make a point to Simon to get him to think. And so read, we read that story in verse 40. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. At least he called him Master, right? He knew he was rabbi and teacher. Therefore was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one 500 pence, owed the, excuse me, owed the two debtors, there was two debtors, one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? And Simon had to think about that for just a moment. Jesus was basically saying, there's two creditors. One owed about 500 days wages. That'd be a year and a half worth of wages. And the other owed 50 days of wages, if you will. In today's dollars, that would be, say, $75,000 versus $7,500. In comparison, the creditor in Jesus' story forgave both of them completely. So Jesus asks, well, who would be most grateful, Simon? Which one? The one who was forgiven more or the one who was forgiven less? And Simon rightly answers in verse 43, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. And that's what he says in 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most... And Jesus said to him, Thou hast rightly judged. You see, Jesus at this point has to rehearse to Simon how this action, uh, the, the, his actions for Jesus himself fell woefully short in showing love for the Master compared to this woman's love for the Master. And so... He says there, and he, he turned in verse 44, he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, and thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Simon, thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto you, or unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. 
but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Wow, what a tremendous story Jesus is giving to this righteous man. In other words, this people can be reverent in, 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 uh, in words, but in actions, they can be disengaged. And Jesus was calling Simon on it. And so let's look secondly at not just the attitude that the woman and Simon had. Now let's look at their actions. Their actions. First, the woman, she followed Jesus. That's what we read here earlier about. She followed Jesus, again, even into this hostile environment. She had to know that entertain, or entering into the home of a religious leader would breed contempt it would breed ridicule. It would breed embarrassment. But her love for Christ compelled her to take the shame of it. And she would rather be near Christ and suffer shame than to be apart from Christ and to miss his love and acceptance and forgiveness. You know, maybe you, some of you this morning might feel like you really can't get closer to, Lord, to the Lord than you are now because of your past and what you've done or what's been done to you and you might feel dirty you might feel distant from the Lord thinking oh I could never get close to God I could never get close to Christ because I know me I know what I've done in the past and that's almost like unforgivable well Jesus response to this sinner woman is the perfect example of how he treats those who have lived a sinful and a reckless life of self-indulgence. Everyone knew this woman and her past. And Jesus lovingly allowed her to show acts of repentance right in front of him and all of these religious leaders. And I can say for all of us, you are loved and you can be forgiven and you can be cleansed of all of your sin whenever we humble ourselves before the Lord and seek His forgiveness. That's what the cross is all about. It's the forgiveness of our sins. And maybe you're watching this morning and, and uh, you're saying, yeah, that's, that's me. I have a sordid past. I, I'm not proud of what I've done. And I don't know that I've ever really gotten right with Jesus. I don't know that I've really ever found myself talking to the Lord or confessing my sin to God. And boy, today would be the perfect day for that. The Bible says that Jesus loved you. The Bible says that he died on the cross for your sin, no matter what it was, no matter how bad it was, no matter how long ago it was. Jesus loves you and died for you. And he wants to have a relationship with you an intimate relationship like this woman had. And so if there's never been a time in your life where you've come to the place where you say, you know, I need to humble myself before the Lord Jesus and, and ask him to forgive me. Do that today. Make that right in the quietness of your own home or wherever you're watching this. You can have a restored and a renewed relationship with Jesus Christ. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. You believe that he paid your penalty 
And that's why he died. And by that you say, Lord, I not only believe that you died on the cross, but you rose from the grave. And today I accept your work on the cross for me. I invite you to come into my heart and life and cleanse me and give me eternal life. He will do that. He longs to do that just as he was forgiving this woman. So make the day of your salvation today. See, when a person really understands the matchless love of Christ that can forgive any sin we've ever committed, they're compelled to live a humble, sub, in, humble submission and in obedience to Him and to follow Him to the ends of the earth. Just like this woman, she's going where Jesus is. Paul wrote this great love that breeds a great desire to follow Christ. I think it's there in your notes, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Look what it says there. For the love of Christ, His love for us, that is, it constrains us, it compels us, it drives us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that's all of us. We were all sinners. Jesus died for all of us, and that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. What a beautiful passage of Scripture. Jesus' love compelled him to go to the cross to die for us, that we might have eternal life with him. Make today the day of your salvation. Call out to God, Lord, forgive me. Please cleanse me. Please save me. It'll be the best day of your life. You see, this woman, by her actions, she also, in your notes there, she served Jesus. Verse 44 that we just read. Jesus says, do you see this woman? I entered into your house, Simon. You didn't give me water. You didn't give me anything for my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. She wanted everyone to know that she was not ashamed to worship me, Jesus would say. But she was identifying with me. You know, Jesus taught about those who only love in word and not indeed. It's found, yes, in Luke chapter 9, verse 26. In other words, those people who only love from a distance, but they don't love intimately. I hope that's not us. Christ wants to have all of our heart. Listen to what he says in Luke 9, 26. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. That's a scary thought. For those of us who know Christ, I want you to think about that. How we live down here is being recorded up there. He's seeing everything that we do and all of our attitudes and our actions and the sincerity of our heart, the genuineness of our heart or the lack thereof. So let your testimony for Christ be genuine no matter who you are around or what company you might be in. Like this woman, she didn't care who these religious people were. She gave her very best, and he is commending her for giving her best. And so instead of having to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ, we want Jesus to give us a good con uh, commendation, not a condemnation. But for him, think about it, being ashamed when we stand there waiting at the judgment seat of Christ for rewards and he sort of has to hang his head and just like 
much I can, I can say to the Father on your behalf. I've watched your life. And yes, you're in heaven, but there's so much more that, that could have been done. Boy, I never want that indictment in my life. And I hope that you don't either. So what was the, as we move on, what's the Pharisee's action? What's Simon's actions in contrast to this woman? Well, we see the Pharisee's actions here. First of all, he didn't serve Jesus. By even just offering water for his feet, much less offering to wash his feet. No, that was a servant's person who did that. That was a servant in his house. He would never offer that. Second, he didn't show any external evidence of love or, or affection for Jesus. Nothing really there. It was just, come on in, sit down, let's eat. Third, he didn't offer any honorable gift uh, for Jesus like one might offer royalty. There was no special thing. Wow, I believe you're the Son of God. Come in, I have something special for you, Lord. I want you to have it because you're the God of the universe, and I acknowledge that. He had none of that. It seems as though he had treated Jesus just like any other man. And we should treat Jesus in our own lives much different. He should get our very best. He should get our very best. And that brings us to the third and final point of this woman. She showed by her attitude. She showed by her actions. And now we're going to see her allocation. What did she give to Jesus in a way of saying, thank you, thank you? What was it? Well, the woman, she gave her most priceless possession. It was her perfume that she kept in an alabaster box. You know, this woman may not have had much, but she gave her very best. She brought the most costly thing that she had, the most valuable thing. It was this substance, this perfume in this alabaster fine box. The Bible tells us of another time when another woman, Jesus' dear friend Mary, came and poured a whole pound of this costly perfume upon the Savior in preparation for his burial. We could read about that. Those who saw her do it, they were shocked because such a flask of perfume was valued at 300 denarii. You know how much that is? That'd be enough for a rough equivalent to 300 days worth of wages. That's almost a year for the typical working man. So this flask of oil might have been close to a year's wage for this woman. And so that she brought it into the Pharisee's house with her, knowing what she was going to do. That's why she brought it. She had pre-planned to give this to Jesus. You see, folks, when we really love Jesus, we're going to give our very best. No, nothing, is, nothing is too much, and it shouldn't be because He's the Lord of the universe. I'm reminded of the old hymn. It's, uh, Have I Done My Best for Jesus. You remember that song? I wonder, have I done my best for Jesus, who died upon the cruel tree? To think of his great sacrifice at Calvary, I know my Lord expects the best of me. How many are the lost that I have lifted? How many are the chained I help to free? I wonder, have I done my best for Jesus when he has done so much for me? Well, this woman was admirable because she had nothing more valuable, most likely, in her squalid life than this. 
and she was willfully willing to give it with her tears to Jesus. Now contrast with the Pharisee. The Pharisee, again, he gave nothing, no anointing, no kiss of affection, no act of service or kindness. You see, it was customary for the host in those days to do these things, but Simon failed to honor his guest. And so here's the point of the whole story between this woman and Simon the Pharisee. There it's in your notes. Look what it says. This woman gave her best and really loved Jesus because she recognized the multitude of her sin. But even more, she recognized the magnitude of Jesus' forgiveness. The magnitude of Jesus' forgiveness. Like, this is how I can be cleansed in my soul. This person can do that. No one else could do that. And so she was humbling herself before anyone who was there to convey this broken spirit in her heart. And so Jesus commends her for it in verse 47. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, and then Jesus says, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. That was directed at Simon. Ouch! Simon, you don't give much, you don't allocate much, your actions didn't show much, your attitude didn't show much. There's not a lot of love here, and I can see that. And so you can't really be forgiven much, can you? Because you're not willing to want the forgiveness. But this woman, she wanted the forgiveness. And so there's no greater motivation in life, folks, to really love Jesus than to come, uh, than coming to the full realization of the forgiveness that Jesus granted us through his death on the cross. There's, there's nothing greater than we can have than the forgiveness of our sins on this earth. What shall a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The reason we lose our soul is because of the magnitude of our sin and we can't get to heaven with, the, with our sin. There needs to be forgiveness of that. And so she loved much because she's been forgiven much. So the question for us this morning is, does your understanding of Jesus' tremendous forgiveness of your sin prompt you to love him more deeply? It should for all of us. And that's the point of the story. There in your notes, great forgiveness should yield a great love for the forgiver of our sin, just like this woman. On a cold winter evening, a man suffered a heart attack, and after being admitted to the hospital, he asked the nurse to call his daughter. He explained, You see, if I live, I live alone, and she is the only family I have. The nurse went to the phone and called the daughter. The daughter was quite upset, and she shouted, You must not let him die! You see, Dad and I had a terrible argument almost a year ago, and I haven't seen him since. All these months, I've, I've wanted to go to him for forgiveness. The last thing I said to him was, I hate you! The daughter cried and then said, I'm coming now. I'll be there in 30 minutes. The patient went into cardiac arrest, and code 99 was alerted. The nurse prayed, Oh God, his daughter is coming. Don't let it end this way. The efforts of the medical team to revive the patient were fruitless. The nurse observed one of the doctors talking to the daughter outside the room. She could see the pathetic hurt in her face. 
the nurse took the daughter aside and said, I'm sorry. The daughter responded, I never hated him. You know, I, I loved him. And now I want to go see him. The nurse took her to the room, and the daughter went to the bed and buried her face in the sheets as she said goodbye to her deceased father. The nurse, as she tried not to look at this sad goodbye, noticed a scrap of paper on the bed table. She picked it up and read, My dearest Janie, I love you. I pray you will also forgive me. I know you love me. I love you too. Daddy. Imagine going through life and not having the forgiveness of someone that we greatly offended. Jesus wants to forgive us. We've offended with our sin. And we must now come humbly before him and ask him in contrition to forgive us. That shows great love when we desire and get his great forgiveness. And so, have you experienced the ultimate forgiveness of Jesus Christ this morning? We're sinners at our core. Jesus is the Savior, and he came to die for you and I. All the good deeds in the world will not save us from our sin. It's what Christ did for us that will save us. And repenting of our sin and asking Christ to come in and to live in our heart, that's what salvation is. And once again, we invite you to invite Jesus Christ into your heart to be Lord and Savior. The story ends, verse 49, and they sat at meat with, with him. They began to say within themselves, who is this that forgives sins also? And while they're debating that, verse 50, it says, and he said to the woman, thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Might that be your story this morning? Receive Jesus Christ as Savior, and you can go in peace as well. As you see the conclusion there, the spiritual growth assignment is this, and this is for us as believers. The best way we can show that we really love Jesus is to live a godly life that reflects our deep appreciation for this supreme act of mercy in forgiving us. Let's live like we're forgiven children of God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for the message of the hour today. Thank you for this tender story in your word that we can read that shows the brokenness of a sinful person and the precious love of Jesus Christ for sinners. Thank you for taking our punishment. Thank you for cleansing us of sin. And so, Lord, if there be those this morning that are sitting in their homes somewhere, sitting in their car this morning, listening to this message, I pray that you would speak to their heart. And maybe that's you this morning out there. You've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The offer is there this morning. And you can pray this prayer. If you mean it from your heart, you pray after me, inviting Christ to come into your life. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. And today, I commit my life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Come into my heart. 
forgive me of my sin and save my soul. Lord, thank you for, again, the message. Please help us as your people to live fervently and righteously because of all that you've done for us. You deserve our very best. Help us to give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Psalm 11. Psalm 11, this is the passage of Scripture that the Lord has laid on my heart uh, for us this evening. A Psalm of David, and I believe a timely one for us uh, in what we are facing in our nation, and possibly what some of you may be even facing in your personal life as well. Psalm 11. In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready the arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone. And in horrible tempest, this shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to, to be here we thank you for the privilege that we have to open the Word of God. We thank you, Father, for what we can learn from it. And we pray that tonight, tonight these truths would be those that we remember, those that we can put into practice in our lives. I pray, Father, that you would empower me with your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would work in the hearts of each of the listeners for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. We all know that the foundation of a building is important. My, my wife and I have been house shopping lately, and uh, usually when we go to a house and go to see it, we, we take my dad along because he has an eagle eye for potential problems with a building. One of the things that you consider when buying a house is its foundation. Now, it's not the prettiest part of the house, but, but it is crucial. If the foundation's crumbling, the rest of the house, no matter how beautiful it may be, will not stand long. There are times in life, you know, when, when it seems that the foundations are crumbling, that they're being destroyed. It happens in society. Many of us probably feel that it's happening right now in America. The, the Judeo-Christian uh, principles upon which this nation was founded are are under attack. In fact, they've been under attack for, for years. The removal of Bible and prayer from schools, uh, the, the legalization of abortion, the promotion of atheistic evolution, the attempt to silence the Christian voice in the public forum. The devil and his forces have been leveling an attack against the foundation of this country and in recent years, we have especially felt the effects of it. 
the foundation appears to be crumbling, doesn't it? But you know, this doesn't just happen in society. Uh, you might be feeling it in your personal life. Maybe the foundation of your marriage is crumbling. Your, your spouse has just asked for a divorce. Or, or maybe it's your family. Your kids have told you that they want nothing to do with your Christian faith. Or possibly you've lost your job. You don't know how you're going to pay the bills. In short, you feel like your life is falling apart. The foundations appear to be crumbling beneath you. What do you do when this happens? Now, now this is what David is facing as he wrote this psalm. And the instruction that he provides here is exactly what you and I need when it comes to these times in our lives when it appears that the foundations are crumbling beneath us. What do you do? Well, look at verse 1. He says, In the Lord put I my trust. There it is, folks. There's the answer. When the foundations appear to be crumbling, you need to trust God. You need to trust God. Now, before David describes the problem, before he gives you any reasons for his argument, he's telling you right up front what you need to do. You know, a number of the Psalms are written this way. They open with the main point, uh, the big truth, as it were. And then everything else in the psalm is, is given there to support that main truth in one way or another. So this is the truth that you and I must remember as we read the rest of the psalm and then as we apply it to our lives. It doesn't matter what appears to be happening in life. You can trust God. You must trust God. And, you know, that's easier said than done. Because there are conflicting voices. And that's what David's dealing with. I want you to see, as we look at this psalm, the two, two voices that we have here. The one is the voice of discouragement, and the other is the voice of faith. Let's look at both of them so that we can understand how we need to be responding. We'll start with a voice of discouragement because that's the one, of course, David brings out first. Look at verse 1 again, but look at the second half of the verse. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? This is the voice of discouragement. What's it say? Flee, run, like a bird escaping to some mountain. You see, the situation was so grave for David's uh, was so grave for David that his counselors were advising that he just run. Now, we don't know what the circumstances were, what, the, what prompted the writing of this psalm. Many commentators believe that it happened in his early life when he's still in the court of King Saul. And when you read the, especially verses 2 and 3, it does appear that that might fit that time. For David, the foundations appeared to be crumbling. Everything was turning against him. And because of Saul's increasing emotional stability, or emotional instability, the kingdom was beginning to crumble. But whatever the circumstances, 
David was forced to listen to the voice of discouragement as these people came to him and told him what they thought he should do. But I want you to notice something. The voice of discouragement here actually sounds like the voice of reason, right? Flee, get out of here. The first thing that a bird does when it feels threatened is fly. And if it can, it'll fly away to a, to a high cliff or a mountain where it can't be caught, where it can't be killed. So this is the advice that's given to David. And I want you to notice something else about it. He says, how say ye to my soul? Now, ye is plural. This wasn't just one fringe voice in David's life. This was the voice of more than one, probably several. And in fact, you'll notice that uh, he says, how say ye flee as a bird to your mountain? So they're speaking to more than just David. Your is also plural. In your King James, ye and your are always plural. So David's not alone. His confidence are telling him that he and his closest friends ought to get out of there. They ought to get to safety. Now, it's important that we understand something. It's not always wrong to run or flee. There have been times that God has given that command. Lot, for example, was told to flee Sodom or face the judgment. David fled from Caleb because the Lord revealed to him that if he stayed there, Saul was going to uh, kill him. When God miraculously opened the prison doors for Peter, remember he's sleeping in the jail and the angel comes in and opens the doors, uh, he was essentially saying to Peter, let's go. Let's get out of here. And that was the right thing to do. In fact, spiritually, we are told to flee fornication. It's not always wrong to flee. But let's understand something else. Just because there's danger does not mean that God wants us to flee. Abraham, for example, was wrong when he fled Canaan to go to Egypt because of a famine. Jonah was wrong when he fled from God's command to go to Nineveh. And David was wrong when he fled to the Philistines to escape from Saul. So the problem here, we see that it's right sometimes to flee and it's not right other times to flee. How do you know which is which? You see, the problem isn't with the, the counsel per se, but with the reasons. How does David know that this is the voice of discouragement, that this is the voice he should not be listening to? It's because of what they continue to say. So he says, how say ye to my soul? Flee as a bird to your mountain. I think that the quotation actually continues through verse 3. And the counselors continue to speak. And what they give in verses 2 and 3 are the reasons for this discouraging advice, as I'm calling it, to tell him to flee. What's the first reason? Well, we find that it's fear. Verse 2. For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. Fear. Fear because of danger. They say the wicked are going to get you, David. And look at the picture that's created. They bend their bow. They pull it back. 
they get their arrow and they put it on the string and they aim it right at him and then they shoot in the dark it says they privily shoot the word privily there literally means in the dark that's at a time when you are most vulnerable when you cannot see when fear tends to be at its height have you ever been afraid in the dark not of the dark but in the dark I would not say that I'm afraid of the dark but I'll tell you this the moments when fear has taken hold of me the worst have always been in the dark I, I might be afraid of what's lurking around the corner you know the thing I can't see I, I don't like to be startled and so I don't want to walk into a room and then suddenly be jumped by someone that I don't know who's there, that I can't see. In moments like that, my ears are especially sensitive. Every little creak, every little crack puts me on the alert. It causes my adrenaline to rise. It prepares me for, for what? For flight. That's what David's dealing with. His friends say, run, because you're in danger. Get out of here. You know, I think this is the message that a lot of Christians are listening to right now. We are living in a society that is increasingly antagonistic toward our Christian faith. We saw that especially last year when the governments came down hard on churches simply because they wanted to gather together for worship. And then with the civil unrest, a troubled election, the uncertainty of the future, an atheistic media, I think a lot of Christians are feeling verse 2 right now. Or they think that verse 2 is going to be their reality soon. They've got their arrow on the string, they've bent their bow, and they're going to be shooting at us soon. Or maybe they feel like they are shooting at them now. And it brings about what? Fear. But that's not the only reason they give for David to flee. The second reason is in verse 3. It's despair. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, this is probably the most famous verse in this psalm <laughs> because it gets quoted in troubled times. Now, I'm not always sure what believers mean when they quote this verse, or preachers, or whomever else it may be. Now, I think that sometimes their meaning is that we must preserve the foundations because if they're lost, all is lost. Well, I don't want to argue about that. What I want to do, though, is to take this verse and put it back in its context. What's the context of this verse? If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, number one, this is not the voice of faith. I've already told you that. This is the voice of discouragement. This is part of the quotation of David's counselors who are telling him to flee. And David already knows that's the wrong advice. So they're telling him to flee because they're saying the foundations are destroyed and you're a righteous, David. You can't do anything. The second thing I want you to notice is that the question has no answer to it, right? If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's no answer there. 
It's a rhetorical question. The point is to show David that there's no hope. The foundations are crumbling. There's nothing you can do. Therefore, you need to get out of here. So therefore, number three, it, it supports this argument for David to flee. Let me make another application because I think that a lot of Christians are struggling right now with the political situation that we're finding ourselves in. And I believe that this psalm speaks to that situation. Frankly, I'm just going to tell you, I am disturbed by the way many in evangelicalism so quickly go from hope to despair in regard to the political situation. You know, if we have a conservative in the White House who's championing our positions, we cheer. We talk about how great he is. We talk him up. We act as if he's our, can I say it, political savior. But the moment that the conservatives lose the election, and we find the opposite in the White House, what I hear on the lips of Christians is despair. The foundations are crumbling. What can the righteous do? My friends, that is not the voice of faith. And that is not the way believers should be thinking or acting. We need to remember what Psalm 118 verse 9 says. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes and rulers. In politicians. Now, please understand, I'm not suggesting that Christians abandon politics. Jesus called us to be salt and light. That is our duty. But we must never substitute a trust in man, any man, for a trust in God. But you know, this same kind of despair shows up in other aspects of our lives. It creeps in when we, we lost our job, when we're facing a health crisis, in some personal deep trial, and we begin to despair. We allow depression to take over our souls. We become angry with God because of what he's allowed. We may quit church. We may abandon biblical righteousness. You know, uh, under normal circumstances, we would never lie, cheat, or steal. But because we have this problem now, and we have listened to the voice of discouragement, we are convinced that there's nothing else that the righteous can do. And so what do we do? We run away. We run away from God. We run away from his righteousness. Foundations appear to be crumbling, so we look for an escape. My friends, that is not God's way. I ask you, what voices are you listening to right now? You know, they may be well-meaning voices, honest news reporters, and I do think there are a few of those around. Family friends, well-meaning voices, but if those voices are the voice of discouragement, then you need to stop listening. You need to challenge them like David did. How can you say that? You say challenge them. Challenge them with what? 
with the voice of faith. And that's what I want you to see. The rest of the psalm is, gives us the voice of faith. But again, I told you, it opens Psalm 11 with that voice. So look back at verse 1 again. Here it is. This is the voice of faith. In the Lord put I my trust. That's the overall theme. David has told us, this is the voice of faith. This is the voice I'm going to listen to. The word trust is not the usual verb for trust in the Old Testament. This word actually means flee for protection or to make a refuge. Do you see what, how David challenges the voice of discouragement with the voice of faith? His counselors come to him and they say, you need to flee like a bird to the mountains. And David responds, what are you saying? In the Lord is my refuge. I have fled to him for protection. That's the right focus. That's the right answer. Martin Luther is probably one of my, favor my favorite um, figures from the Reformation. Not because he always had everything right. He didn't. But because he stood for truth against all odds. Luther had rediscovered justification by faith and began preaching it. And as a result, he was summoned to a, a church council, a committee meeting, you might call it, in the city of Worms. He was, there, he was called there to answer for his biblical teaching, which was contrary to the Roman church. His friends feared for his life. You see, just a hundred years before that, a man by the name of John Huss was preaching the exact same thing, the same gospel, and he was burned at the stake. So it seemed like reason to argue that Luther should run and hide from the council. But you see, Luther was undeterred. With faith in God, he responded to his friends who told him they, he should get away while he had a chance. He said, even should there be as many devils and worms as tiles on the housetops, still I would enter it. That is a man who's listening to the voice of faith. Is this just a pipe dream? Are these just words that we say to make ourselves sound spiritual? Well, just as David's counselors gave him two reasons to flee, David now gives his reasons for the voice of faith, for trust. He doesn't give just two. He gives five. I want you to see them here in the remainder of the time that we have together. The first reason he gives why he should trust the Lord and why you should trust the Lord in hard times and when the foundations appear to be crumbling is the Lord reigns. Each of these reasons has the Lord as its focus. Notice this. Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in, the heaven, is in heaven. Now in Hebrew poetry, we have a lot of parallelism and these two expressions are saying essentially the same thing. God is on his throne in heaven. The Lord reigns. There's the answer, folks. That's why you can trust God. 
Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Psalm 2 verse 4, In answer to the wicked, you want to talk about the wicked, and they're shooting at the righteous? In answer to the wicked, and a wicked world that thinks it will overthrow God and his anointed, who is Jesus Christ. This is what it says. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. God will just laugh at them because there is no way they can overthrow him. Folks, this is the foundational truth for the voice of faith. The Lord is on his throne. Now let me ask you, if God is on his throne, can the foundations be destroyed? The answer is a resounding no. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus Christ is the brightness of his glory that is God's and the express image of his person, and he is, listening, upholding all things by the word of his power. He's upholding all things by the word of his power. My friends, he is sovereign. Nothing can overthrow him. Nothing can disturb him. America may be destroyed. Our freedoms may be taken away. Your health may give out. Your finances may collapse, but God cannot be moved. God will not change. His love for you is eternal. Your salvation in him is constant. His truth will prevail. His church will endure, and his promises cannot fail. Folks, we need to get hold of that truth. We need to hold on to that because that's why you can flee to God for a refuge. We are not told that the Christian path will always be easy, but we are told that it is a victorious path because God is in control and he does not change. The first reason you can trust God is that the Lord reigns. The second is that the Lord sees. Look again at verse 4. His eyes behold the children of men. Skipping over there to the end because that's the the point what's God see he sees the children of men he sees what's going on he knows what's happening in our nation in your life the Lord sees in the dark when you cannot he sees the future in the last couple of years my family and I have had to make some difficult decisions in the dark as it were we left our church in West Virginia moved to Pennsylvania without really knowing the future, without knowing what my wife's health would be like, without even really knowing what the problem was, without having a a full-time job, having left the ministry that we loved, not knowing what what schooling we could do for Nathaniel. I mean, there were so many unknowns. And some of it's still unknown to us. You know, I find myself having to make decisions for my family without having enough facts. (laughs) Have you ever been there? I have to make a decision about this. But I don't have all the facts. So I constantly have to appeal to God to guide us. Because I know he knows 
all the facts. He sees. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. The Lord reigns. The Lord sees. Thirdly, the Lord tries. He tries. His eyelids try the children of men. Now, eyelids, that's just another way to talk about eyes. This is poetry, remember? So he says eyes and eyelids uh, together. The word try, though, means to examine, to scrutinize, to test, to prove in the sense of testing the value of something or the sincerity of someone. Joseph used this word in reference to the testing of his brother's testimony. He says, by this you'll be proved. You go back to Canaan and bring back your youngest brother that you said you have. We'll test and see if that is a true testimony. The point is, folks, that God doesn't just see what men do. He discerns what they do because he tests hearts. Proverbs 17.3, The fining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. Yes, the Lord tests hearts. Look at verse 5. The Lord trieth the righteous. So now the thought is intensified. It's not only the wicked that God sees and examines, he tests the righteous too. Doesn't the scripture tell us that? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, quoting Proverbs chapter 3, says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Yes, the Lord will test us. He will try us. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's the voice of faith, my friends. That's the voice you ought to be listening to. What is it? It's the word of God. The foundations of your life may appear to be crumbling, but it is no time for despair. It is the time to listen to the voice of faith in the word of God, to recognize that God is in control and is testing you, testing you for a good purpose, because he loves you, because he wants to bring his son out in you. The fourth thing that David says is that the Lord, the Lord judges Verse 5 again. The wicked, and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Verse 6. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares and fire brimstone and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. You see, the wicked do not have the hope that I just described for you because they're under the wrath of God. They shall not escape his judgment. Now it may appear that they are escape, escaping now for time. There are many wicked in our land today who appear to be getting away with their violence, their hatred, their evil. But the voice of faith says that the Lord will judge the wicked. They will not escape forever. A judgment is coming for them. And even if they do not experience it in this life, they will experience it in the next. Look at what it says. The end of verse 6. 
this shall be the portion of their cup. Now the picture here is of a head of a household who passes to each member a cupful to drink at the meal. It is the portion of the drink that's poured out for them. It's very personal. Each receives his own cup. It's his portion. What does David say? The cup that the wicked can expect to receive from the Lord is a cup of wrath. It's a cup of judgment. It is their portion, and none shall escape it. Sin must be punished. I say none shall escape it unless that judgment is taken by someone else. My friends, the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ took the cup of wrath for our sins. In the garden, he cried out in agony, let this cup pass from me, that cup of judgment. I believe if there were any other way to save mankind, God would have honored that prayer and done it. But there wasn't. Our Savior had to drink the bitter cup to the last of its dregs. He took our sin upon himself. He suffered the full wrath of God so that the wrath of God would be turned away from us when we cry out to him for mercy. Oh, my friends, that is the only way of escaping the judgment of a righteous, holy God who is seated upon his throne in heaven and sees everything you do and discerns that you are a sinner. But when you give your life to Christ and you receive his salvation, the Bible tells us that we are made righteous in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For he hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's your only hope for salvation. And if you've never called on Christ to save you, oh, you don't have to drink that cup of judgment because Jesus took it for you. Will you not accept his finished work and receive him as your savior. And that brings me to the last thing then that David says. Here it is. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. The Lord rewards. As a follower of Christ, you are among the righteous. You are loved by God, and you are promised his reward. To say that the face of God sees the upright is an expression, folks, of both deliverance and fellowship. That's the voice of faith. This world and what appears to be crumbling foundations, folks, are only temporary. Our final deliverance and our eternal fellowship awaits us with God in heaven. So we should not only be among the righteous by trusting Christ. We must do that to be in heaven. But, but we must also live righteously because God rewards the righteous. 
Now here as we close, I want you to see the flow of thought that David is giving you. What's the voice of faith? In the Lord is my refuge. But the voice of faith is rooted in the fact of verse 4, the Lord reigns. Folks, if that is not true, then nothing else is true. You have no refuge, not now, not for eternity, if the Lord doesn't reign. But it is true. The Lord reigns. And he doesn't just reign. He sees all. And he doesn't just see. He tries hearts. And he doesn't just discern. He judges the wicked. And he doesn't just judge. He rewards the righteous. And when the foundations appear to be crumbling, you need to trust God. Remember this, folks. The true foundations are not crumbling because God is still on the throne. He is still reigning and he will be victorious. My favorite poem on this topic is by James Russell Lowell, who lived in the 1800s. Stanza 2 reads this way. Careless seems the great avenger, He's talking about God, the great avenger. He says, God, God seems careless sometimes. Careless seems the great avenger. History's pages but record one death grapple in the darkness twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet the scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. This week, this year, let's listen to the voice of faith, not the voice of discouragement. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would take the word of God and sink it deep into our hearts. Ah, Lord, I know that I need to be reminded of these truths as much, if not more, than others. Because it's so easy to fall into the trap of listening to the voice of discouragement and not the voice of faith. Oh, Father, keep our focus on you, on eternity, on what Jesus Christ has done for us. I pray, Father, that as we focus on him, we won't be listening to the wrong voices around us because, you see, our God is on the throne. No matter what happens in this earth, he rules. He sees. He discerns. <laughs> he judges and he rewards. Lord, we want to be among those who receive the reward of the righteous in that day of victory. Keep us faithful. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.